Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. I was so excited when I got third row seats for the new Broadway show, The Book of Atheists. But I didn't realize there would be so many jokes at the expense of the things that I hold rationally non-sacred. Arthur, why don't you ever call me your angel? Angels are fake. (laughs) Maybe so, but a girl likes to hear she's the dream you prayed for. Prayer doesn't work. (laughs) At least say that being with me is like heaven. Heaven is a completely imaginary construct used to lull the masses into compliance. This is not funny. I'm not comfortable with this. It's, you know, it's not easy being a minority when everyone's laughing at your culture. Let's bow our heads and thank the agricultural science that made this meal possible and try not to think about talking snakes who bring apples to women made out of ribs. (laughs) Okay, that was funny. I know a guy who really says stuff like that. I got Richard Dawkins tickets. (laughs) He thinks Richard Dawkins is like Springsteen or something. I had no idea my own closely held attitudes were so hilarious. Today on the show, Alex Beam on the Book of Mormon, Rinker Buck on the Missing Plane, and a discussion of a law enforcement database that contains your parking tickets and the tuba you pawned. And now, why won't any Broadway producer touch his anti-vaccine musical? Colin McEnroe. The problem with my anti-vaccine musical is that the entire cast dies at the end of Act One from preventable diseases. And producers just say, what are you going to do for a second act? Which, of course, is what producers always say. All right. So uh, I'm already in a lot of trouble with <laughs> with the anti-vaccine movement. I just I've decided I'm just going to make it worse. Uh, I'm, they're still upset about last Monday's show. All right. So um, towards the end of the show today, we will talk to Alex Beam. He's the meanest man in journalism. He's uh, got a book coming out about Joseph Smith uh, coming out in just uh, a few weeks, really. So we decided we're going to do a whole show with him about that book. But we do have Book of Mormon in town right now. It's from the national tours playing at the Bushnell. Uh, and we are kind of interested to know sort of how – Mormon audiences uh, react to that, how they process uh, what's what's up there on stage. So we'll have kind of a wide-ranging conversation with Alex about about that and kind of tangential issues. Uh, also, well, anyway, he'll be our super guest. We'll be talking to him uh, about a bunch of different things. He wants to talk also about Pope Francis and specifically about the panel uh, convened uh, that features uh, a, the Cardinal of Boston, a panel that Pope Francis has asked to um, produce some kind of dispositive report uh, about the allegations of, of clergy abuse. Um, before that happens, we'll be talking to Rinker Buck. He is a pilot and a writer. He's been a licensed pilot since he was 14. Uh, he's written about plane crashes. Uh, he's, uh, in fact, won an award for his investigation of the John F. Kennedy Jr. crash off of Martha's Vineyard. Um, he's uh, got some in- interesting things to say about the Malaysian airliner, So, um, and, and particularly about what pilots say to one another uh, about that. So anyway, that's coming as well. As you probably know, there's been some bit of a development um, 
uh, with the Malaysian lost airliner, although maybe not a development that will end all speculation. We're going to begin with a different topic, though, um, and, and that's a, a story that kind of has been bubbling under the news. It hasn't uh, been reported in that many outlets, but I, I think it's got legs. Um, it's the story, you, you may know there's a TV show, which I personally have never seen, called NCIS. Well, there is a real NCIS, the Navy Criminal Investigative Service. Um, their alleged uh, job is basically to uh, to look into and to, to ward off uh, acts of terrorism and other criminal behavior directed at the Navy and the, uh, and the Marine Corps. Um, they maintain a big database called LINCS, the Law Enforcement Information Exchange, uh, and um, it, it exists to further their purposes. Uh, it doesn't exist to collect new intelligence. It exists to aggregate and compile a lot of existing um, information that, that's actually handled by lots of different law enforcement organizations. Joining us right now is uh, Eugene R. Feidel. Uh, he is a senior research scholar in law and Florence Rogat's visiting lecturer in law at Yale Law School. Uh, welcome to the show. Hello, nice to be with you. So uh, you were asked to, to kind of do a little bit of research uh, on this and uh, into so-called LINCS, the Law Enforcement Inf- Information Exchange. What did you find? What is this this creature we call LINCS? It's an effort by the uh, Naval Criminal Investigative Service to um, tap into the vast quantities of information that have been gathered by a host of other law enforcement agencies, federal and state. Uh, Every branch of the military has what's called a criminal investigative organization. Together, they're called MCIOs, Military Criminal Investigative Organizations. And um, they... They do important work, but uh, the disclosures about the LINCS program of information sharing cast a light on it that I think many Americans would find surprising and unsettling. For example, uh, LINCS apparently gives NCIS access to 506 million records, and these records uh, include things like traffic citations even, dispatch logs, uh, criminal histories. Uh, it's, it, you know, th- that such records exist, no one would, would uh, wonder about. The question is why NCIS is involved in the process. And NCIS has stated the following. Uh, having current information available at the street level has enhanced officer safety. I imagine that's NCIS officer safety and the ability to solve crime, fight terrorism, and protect strategic assets, which I take it at least the latter category is make sure that nobody commits sabotage against naval installations. The question is whether these are all functions that should be performed by uh, an entity within the Defense Department. And so uh, we, we even read, I don't know whether this is an exaggeration or not, that parking tickets are in there too? Yes, apparently minor traffic citations are in there. What's fascinating is what isn't in there. Mm -hmm. Uh, Background checks for gun sales and concealed carry permits are not included in the database, apparently showing that that's kind of the third rail when it comes to uh, maintaining government records. So um, and just to walk us through, okay, now some people would probably listen to this and say, well— Good, right? Uh, if some, that's you know, we're just a few weeks away from the anniversary of the Boston Marathon bombing. So at some point, you figure out that you've got some suspects, and you you, you want to know anything you can about them, and you find out that one of the Sarnayev brothers had a 
moving violation in Coral Gables, Florida, two months ago, and you find out this, you find out that, um, and it's material to your investigation or it's not. Um, but there are a lot of people who who think, well, I don't really do anything all that bad. I don't do anything wrong that I, you know that I'm terribly concerned about. Uh, it doesn't bother me that this branch of the military is aggregating information, including my three parking tickets and my failure to obey the posted limit and and and. And oh, by the way, before I even get to the end of this question, we're, I, I saw one uh, presentation by the Navy about this that included pawn records, although it was early in the going. I don't know if they ever if they did pawn records. Did you find anything about that? No, uh, uh, since I've never pawned anything, I right. guess by your analysis, I shouldn't worry. Right, about shouldn't it, worry. But. Okay, I'll, I'll get into my question. So there's some people who are just saying, well, you know, what the heck? Uh, it's good that they have this stuff because there's bad guys out there and they set off bombs uh, at, uh, you know, at marathons. And so the sooner we catch them, the better. And so it's good to know, you know, that two months ago they were in, in Billings, Montana, uh, and they got a parking ticket. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with it is that on April 15th, you and I and a lot of people listening to this show are going to be writing our checks to the federal government for our income taxes. And uh, your tax dollars are paying for this. Mm -hmm. That's on one level. What we have here is mission creep by an entity that should have a quite narrow uh, field of focus. That's the first point. The second point is this is not just another police force. It's a police force within the defense establishment. And I think a lot of taxpayers will have the feeling that there's something highly wrong with this. We have a federal law enforcement agency, the FBI. It's done a wonderful job since, you know, the days of J. Edgar Hoover and before. Uh, we have other federal law enforcement in the District of Columbia. We have a multitude of federal police agencies that protect everything from the Supreme Court building to the Capitol building to the parks. Uh, we don't need another police force that's within the Navy Department to deal with things other than internal discipline and crime within the naval establishment and maybe crime at the perimeter. The notion that you need to have a, uh, a Navy police force uh, fighting terrorism, I'm sorry, that's the job of the FBI. Uh, or solving crime, it depends on what kind of crime. If it's internal to the Navy, that's one thing, and nobody has a problem with that. The problem is one of mission creep, and particularly mission creep by an entity within the defense establishment. And I think most Americans, as I said, would find this disturbing. Now, in terms of that mission creep, I mean, obviously we're in the middle of an even larger national debate about this. I mean, the, the post-Snowden revelations, what we've come to understand about what the NSA uh, either does or does not collect, and that, that isn't a closed question at this point either. I, I don't think we ultimately know all the answers to this. But you sort of wonder, well, if it's mission creep, how do you reverse mission creep? And, and I would assume, from your point of view anyway, that the, the way that this is going to be reversed, if at all, is going to be through some kind of court challenge. In other words, ultimately, uh, there will be some kind of case in which there, my privacy was invaded unnecessarily because of this. I mean, is there any other way to deal with something like this other than winding up in front of the Supreme Court questioning whether such a domestic database should exist and be in the hands of the military? Yeah, I actually don't think a court challenge is the solution to this particular problem, which I do think is a problem, obviously. I think the, uh, the solution lies in Congress. And uh, this is a kind of issue, interestingly, that cuts across party lines. In fact, it cuts across the political spectrum. I think people who are on the libertarian end of things 
are going to be able to make common cause on this with people who are on the civil libertarian end of things. And uh, I, I see a substantial coalition that could form around this. And I think the first step is going to be for the armed services committees to hold hearings and find out what the facts are and let somebody from NCIS explain what it's doing with the taxpayers' money. Although there are, are I, I mean, I agree. And even just reading comments on it and just seeing what has been published so far about this, you you can see that those two groups, one that exists more or less on the far right or the not the way far right, uh, and, and one another that exists pretty much over on the left, uh, do make common cause around this, although not exactly in the same way. I mean, as you implied, uh, I, and as I agree, if there's going to be something like this, which there probably shouldn't be, if there's going to be something like this and it gets kicked into gear in a situation where there is an act of terror or an incipient act of terror, uh, if, if it exists, one of the things I would like to know is whether Mr. Tsarnaev or whoever we're looking at at a given point has bought, has bought firearms recently. And if so, what kinds of firearms does he have? And that's exactly the kind of thing that doesn't exist. And if that would bother somebody on the left, it would bother somebody on the right to hear that argument made in the way that I just made it, though. Right. Well, the Tsarnaev case has nothing to do no, with No, I just uh, as yeah, an object lesson. Yeah, but it's not, uh, if, with, with all respect, I, I think that that's a distraction. I think the real question here uh, is from the standpoint of what we consider the proper role of the military establishment in a, in a democratic society. And I think for many, many decades, we have had a real allergy to uh, having the military involved in law enforcement. And uh, I think this is part and parcel of that. I think the FBI can deal with the uh, kinds of issues that you're addressing. Uh, they're good at it. They've got a uh, really an unbroken chain of victories when cases come to federal court. And I don't think we need a million different federal law enforcement agencies. I, I'm totally with you on this. Um, and, you know, a principle that used to be uh, invoked in conversations like this was posse comitatus, the notice that, notion that the military shouldn't be involved domestically. I feel like post-Patriot Act, that's kind of in tatters, though. I mean, I think the mission creep started a long time ago, and it, it isn't just this thing, right? Well, mission creep is a, <laughs> it's, it's a common ailment among government agencies. Um, they tend to grow uh, and grow in way uh, grow outside the the limelight and then you wake up one morning and you find out they're doing all these things uh their budgets have mushroomed and so on uh i get that i think we're all familiar with it and i think those people who are out there looking for ways to trim the fat in the federal budget including the defense budget might take a hard look at ncis from that perspective um, it sounds great to me. And uh, so, Eugene Feidel, thank you so much for joining us. Once again, Eugene Feidel, Senior Research Scholar in Law and Florence Rogatz, Visiting Lecturer uh, in Law at Yale Law School. This is an interesting topic. We're going to keep our eye on it for a while. We'll be back with Rinker Buck, talk a little bit more about the plane crash. Someone to watch. And we're back. 
Uh, we're back with The Scramble. This is a show where every Monday we try to react to the weekend's news as quickly as we can. Uh, joining us now, I don't know why I didn't think of talking to him sooner about this. Uh, Rinker Buck knows uh, more about this kind of thing than any human being. I know uh, he's a flyer, a writer, a licensed pilot since the age of 14. Uh, he's written extensively on aviation safety and flying issues and won aviation's highest award for his coverage of the John F. Kennedy Jr. plane crash off Martha's Vineyard in uh, 1999. Uh, so I ran into another guy in a coffee ha- shop over the weekend who pointed out to me that, Rinker, that you've been uh, studying the Malaysian situation a lot. Today we have a little bit more news. The Malaysian prime minister essentially trying to uh, put a period at the end of the sentence by saying the plane is probably in the Indian Ocean and that there are no survivors. Um, but let's back up a little bit. As you've sure. watched this story unfold, what have you seen that has made you begin to form a theory of what happened? Well, first of all, um, uh, it, it, it may not seem dispositive to people um, right now, but the, in the history of aviation, plane disappearances over water are extremely com- common, and the plane is not found. Okay, and there's a long history of this. Uh, the first competitors to fly the English Channel, two or three of them ended up in the water. They never found them. Glenn Miller, who was the great rock star of his age and an American hero because he enlisted in the army to entertain the troops overseas disappeared um, in 1945, again, in a very narrow channel of water, a 26-mile crossing to France from uh, Dover. Uh, There was a massive search for him. He was a huge American hero. His plane has never been found. Uh, Saint-Exupéry, it took 70 years to to find him. He was probably one of the great best-selling authors of of, uh, the 20th century and a fighter pilot during World War II. He was finally found 70 years later after his uh, ID bracelet turned up in a fisherman's net. Mm. So, um, and, and there's many, many more examples. To, um, lots of airliners and lots of troop transports um, during Vietnam lost in the Atlantic and the Pacific. So um, <clears throat> the, the perspective that I could offer is um, it would be more unusual for them to find this plane quickly than it would be for them uh, not to be able to find it. Um, and as far as uh, theories about this, uh, I think we all need to be careful because of so much speculation, and there's probably been too much media speculation. But the evidence, to me, is absolutely, and to a lot of other very talented guys who look at these things, um, absolutely consistent with um, some kind of a mechanical failure, probably um, a fire uh, or a, a sort of a low-grade combustion that produces a lot of smoke that incapacitated um, the electrical systems of the plane and then and then the pilots. Um, and it was, there's an onboard computer that could not have, that might not have been um, incapacitated, which would fly the plane in the directions that the pilots were flying it at the last moment they uh, they passed out, which would, which would, um, they're, they're called um, fly-by-wire systems and they're very reliable. It's what helped Captain Sullenberger land um, on the Hudson, and that plane will just fly until it's out of fuel. Mm-hmm. So, so it, it, the evidence to me is more consistent with an electrical fire or some uh, a rapid decompression or some kind of uh, disabling uh, event like that than sabotage or the pilots were committing suicide or something like that. 
So some of this, uh, some of what we've seen over the last few weeks, then seems like more like the product of the media environment that it happened in than the event itself, right? We've got 24-hour media coverage, sure. but more than that, we've got a digital culture that expects to be able to get answers, right? If you just type the right thing into the search engine, uh, you're going to be able to find something out. Yes, um, even though we live actually in the age when Newsweek just revealed. Uh, the name of the Bitcoin founder, uh, who probably is not the name of the Bitcoin founder. <laughs> the media can't be wrong. But I, I think this um, tragedy will be looked upon later as a very interesting intersection between uh, changing media needs and uh, what happens in aviation when planes disappear over water, which is they can't be found quickly. The 24-hour news cycle of the of the cable channels requires them to and we have new news, new information. Uh, you know, the Chinese radar has found such and such. Uh, the next morning, that, which they know perfectly well by now, and they should know perfectly well by now, they're going to have to walk back and say, well, it's not quite so conclusive. I watched CNN last night for two hours, and they had seven experts, NTSB, former heads, and things like that. It's seven experts. They talked for two hours straight without offering a scintilla of new information. There was no news. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you remember this current, but back, um, Colin, but remember back in the days in the Hartford Current when they'd say, well, what's going on with that story? What's going on? Uh, nothing's happening. Okay, well, just keep an eye on it, and you know, we'll put something else in the paper today. Um, we are so yesterday, Colin. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's not the style today. And this story exemplifies that. As one pilot said to me the other night, um, um, the, the result of the disappearance of Flight 370 is that uh, a lot of Americans are going to be tempted to repeal the First Amendment. <laughs> well, the you know, I wanted to ask you about that. Um, I assume that pilots have their own networks for talking to one another, whether you do it digitally yeah. or, or otherwise. So I assume also that, yeah, I mean, you're somebody who's probably pretty plugged into these networks. I assume there's been a long ongoing conversation among people who actually fly planes about this. And I assume it's been pretty different from what we've seen in the mainstream media. Yes. the um, I would say the most consistent conclusion uh, among um, the pilot community on all the blogs and everything else is that uh, the evidence is absolutely consistent with um, some kind of fire on board. We now know that they had the lithium batteries, which was the kind of factor that happened in the value jet crash, but those were oxygen canisters. Um, it's possible the lithium batteries in the rear of the plane could have um, knocked out some of the electrical systems um, before the pilots were overcome with smoke. Uh, another fairly common scenario, and it, it's actually happened a couple times, is when you pull your nose wheel up, it's very, very hot. You're rotating that aircraft into the air at about 120 miles an hour. The nose wheels are hot. They then <clears throat> retract into the fuselage and are contained uh, by uh, doors, which create a kind of um, create kind of a wood stove effect in there. Mm -hmm. It's a very narrow space uh, that retains the heat. Um, not much oxygen, but just enough wind racing through. As you climb the plane and the air gets thinner, conditions are actually better for combustion than at a lower altitude. At 5,000 feet, say, um, there's too much oxygen for combustion to occur in that situation. At 15,000 or 20,000 feet, the oxygen is thinned out to just the right level where you would get a low-grade but smoldering, smoky fire. Most 
um, of the blogs in the pilot community out there are saying, including some you know really top triple seven pilots that some of whom I know are saying uh, the scenario for that kind of mechanical electrical fire um, is mu- is much more likely than a sabotage theory or a hijack theory or a terrorist theory. I think. Uh, do you think that people want it to be something like the latter? In other words, people who who fly a lot, they don't want to hear what you just said that that there could be a fire just because there's a fire. You know that they they want to believe. Uh, that it's something extraordinary, that it, it's some kind of hijacking or it's a, a crazy pilot who's a member of a cult. Or they, they want to hear something like that because they, they, they'll feel so much more exposed if they think, wow, a plane could just catch on fire when yeah, I'm on well, it. Well, it, it, it's always fascinating how these events reflect the mentality of the time. Okay, So 9-11 happened, and our response to it was you know, a couple of invasions, which you might remember reading about, but also... Um, the drone strikes in Pakistan, relentless, and in other parts of the world. And the subliminal conclusion that people reach is, we got attacked by terrorists, that was a human event, and we retaliated, and there's been no other major attacks um, of, of consequence since then. Well, that's a lot more comforting to know, because if this was a terrorist attack, we can identify those humans and, and prevent that from happening again. That's what our mentality is now. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's a mysterious electrical fire that maybe everybody should have known about, but this was the, really the first bad case of this showing up in this airplane, which has a very reliable safety record, um, that's not something that's very easy to... We, we, we don't have the same uh, black-and-white solution for that. So, yes, it's, it's much more fearful for people to to uh, think of this as mechanical failure than uh, terrorism, because who wants to get on a plane again? Um, last quick question, uh, Rinker Buck. Uh, sure. Whenever there's something like this, uh, there are there's sort of how the media handles something like this, but there's also mm-hmm. kind of what the media receives in terms of uh, official dispatches from, ever, from whomever is handling them. And right. those of us who've been through power outages here in Connecticut know that the way that we're being told the story can really affect people's moods and perceptions sure. as much as the reality can. So how about that? As you watch this unfold, whether it's the Malaysian government or anybody else mm-hmm. putting out a story, are there lessons to be learned about how they handled this? Uh, I, 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 yes. The, the, their information should have come out earlier. Um, it's, it's, Malaysia is by no means a backward country or anything like that. The whole concept of they're being developed in undeveloped countries is sort of going out the window. But I do have, and, so, and they've made a lot of mistakes, but I do have to say that I could imagine this exact same scenario happening to a more advanced country, even the United States. If we lost a plane under similar circumstances crossing the Pacific or the Atlantic, um, it could be several days before the information we're using is accurate. The NTSB would be accusing the Pentagon of not releasing radar data because they don't want to compromise security, um, so on and so forth. So, yes, it's easy to blame the Malaysian government because they looked at because they look inept now, but I would go back to the original historical point. Planes that disappear over water are usually never found. Um, it, took, it took France, a very advanced country, with the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, 23 months, almost two years, to find the Air France wreck. Uh, we had exact coordinates on John F. Kennedy's uh, plummet into the waters off Martha's Vineyard, and I believe it was five days before his plane was found. Mm-hmm. It's just not an easy science, and um, 
it, it's it's unfair to the Malaysians to automatically assume they've been inept at this because I think almost any other country would have the same problems. And that is, the media is presenting it as inept Malaysians. And in fact, the truth is, um, it's very difficult to find a plane lost in a remote ocean. Rinker Buck, it's great to talk to you. Uh, you are exactly the right guy to talk to us about this. Rinker Buck uh, does write about aviation and specifically has written about plane crashes, uh, won aviation's highest award for his coverage of the John F. Kennedy Jr. crash that he just mentioned off Martha's Vineyard. That was 1999. When we come back, the meanest man in journalism, Alex Beam, will be joining us. If you don't need to see the proof, it's a mystery. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. We're back. This is The Scramble. Uh, before we go to Alex, let me just quickly mention this. I'm going to be mentioning this off and on because I want you to get it on your camera, on your cameras. That would be good. Put it on your cameras. <laughs> I want you to get it on your calendars, um, particularly if you have kids who are playing sports, but also if you're just sort of a flat-out sports fan kind of wondering what's happening to your favorite game. On April 9th, which is a Wednesday, at Watkinson School at 7 p.m., we're going to do the last in this uh, year's freshly squeezed forums. Uh, this is a, a, a conversation called Whatever Happened to the Field of Dreams? Or maybe it's called How Do We Get Back to the Field of Dreams? I should know. I thought up the title, but I don't remember. But anyway, it's sort of about the way in which competition and corruption seem to be driving out the play in sports. Uh, we have a terrific panel for you, including Reggie Hatchett, who uh, is the Connecticut Basketball Association coach, but also took over the Weaver High School team, uh, led them to the championship game, state championship game this weekend uh, in, at Class M. Uh, we'll have a, a spokesperson or a, a, actually a vice president from the Corey Stringer Institute, which specializes in uh, sports injuries and trying to prevent uh, death in sports. Uh, we'll have Jeff Jacobs, a acclaimed journalist, from the Hartford Current, sports columnist, and uh, Glenn Cusano, who's a, a youth coach and also a parent uh, of a kid who suffered a significant injury uh, while playing youth sports. So um, it's open to the public. I think the ticket's 15 bucks. Uh, go to Watkinson School. Call Watkinson School or go to Watkinson.org to find out more about it. We'll also be recording a, a version of it for, the, for our, a future show that night. So you'll get to see our exciting team in action. That's April 9th. Get it on your calendar or your camera. Uh, and uh, do come join us. We'd love to have you. All right. So joining us now as our super guest today is Alex Beam. Alex gets to pick the topics, although I, I wanted Alex to talk about one thing in particular. We're going to do a whole show with Alex, uh, an Alex Beam-Arama show uh, coming up in May, uh, coincident with the publication of his book, American Crucifixion, The Murder of Joseph Smith and the Fate of the Mormon Church. But right now, here in Hartford at the Bushnell, the national tour of the Book of Mormon is playing. Uh, I've, I saw the show on Broadway. I always kind of wonder, because I do know that Mormons go to see the show, I sort of wonder you know, what it's like uh, for them to see that show. And so without uh, delving too deeply into Alex's book, which, as we say, will be a major episode of our show in the future, I thought we, maybe we could, we could begin there anyway. Hi, Alex. Colin, how are you? Excellent. Uh, you just did your taxes. I hope it went well. It didn't go so badly, frankly. All right. That's a relief. <laughs> I'm not financing the Obama war machine. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, so sorry. <laughs> that's all right. We already covered that in segment A. Exactly. Um, so, um, so, so, first of all, give us kind of a perspective on this. I mean, uh, in in 
uh, the Book of Mormon, which is a satirical musical. I mean, these the creators of South Park, they really kind of have some fun at the expense of Mormon theology, right? Well, I, I guess, you know, I, as, I, as I sort of indicate, I'm glad you and I have both seen the show. I, was that really fun, Colin, in Act One? I, I thought it was really a bit more than fun. I mean, the, it's a strange musical, I would argue, because, you know, Act One and Act Two have sort of different feels to them. But um, as I mentioned to you, a friend of mine walked out after Act One, uh, really because he was so astonished that um, you could revile a religion, uh, you know, a mainstream American religion uh, to that extent. Um, so when we say revile, well, I mean, ex- explain what you mean, revile. Explain what you think is the re- reviling of the religion. Okay, I, I will. I, I'm, but I'm just going to couch this just because my, you know, my my friend is not not it's not important. You know, he's a, he's a he's a observant Jew, and then he he left after Act One because he's history minor, and he said, you know, sixty or seventy years ago, I bet people would have been happy to have depi- you know depict the Jewish religion in, in these incredibly derogatory and hostile terms. I I guess I didn't think. I mean, I mean, in a nutshell. I really thought they took a dump on, on Joseph Smith. I mean, not in a funny way. I mean, Mormons themselves, believe me, you know, are very capable of rolling their eyeballs when, you know, when the talk turns around to the so-called golden tablets that Joseph supposedly unearthed in Palmyra, New York, in the, in the late 1820s, and then he supposedly translated from these golden tablets although without actually looking at them or handling them, you know, he created the Book of Mormon, and then the angel, you know, took the tablets away, supposedly, you know, before literally anybody could see these tablets. So, uh, of course, you can make sport of that, you can have fun with it. Um, I, I guess I, I will go back to my, my vulgar statement. I really thought they took a dump on the foundations of the Mormon religion, um, you know, specifically mocking. I mean, again, I I don't want to get tossed off your air, you know, more times than necessary, but do you you actually think that in the Bushnell Auditorium there would be a vitriolic satire about the creation of the Torah? No, I think you're right about that. And I I guess I, I come at it from a different angle, too. I mean, this is actually something that we discuss with some regularity in my household. Uh, And, and, uh, there's another person in my household who does have almost a, a South Parky attitude to the actual story and theology of Mormonism, that it's inherently uh, crazy talk. And my reaction to that is, well, all religions sound crazy. You know, if, if you just explain them to someone, if you try to explain just the bare bones of Christianity. In fact, when missionaries struggled to explain to uh, to people in other cultures why God would allow himself or a version of himself to be tor- tortured and killed. Why would your God do such a thing? Um, certainly, you know, if you try to explain transubstanti- transubstantiation or even pronounce it, it turns out, uh, to people, you know, it, it sounds kind of nutty that th- this is actually really flesh and blood. It's not a metaphor for flesh and blood. It's really flesh and blood. Um, stuff that people take for granted because it's part of their own religion. All religions, and I'm not you know, a religion-hating atheist or anything like that. But I recognize that all religions sound a little bit nutty. Well, right. And I mean, the the South Park thing is, is, 
You know, it's complex because, you know, Trey Parker obviously co-created the famous South Park episode about the Mormon boy who comes to South Park. And if you integrate Act 2 into Act 1 of the Book of Mormon, I mean, I think the general reaction is that it's a somewhat uh, warm, you know, generally, yeah, a relatively warm and positive view of human nature and a positive view of the human nature of the people who profess the Mormon faith. Um, certainly, the South Park episode is, I mean, which you know is worth googling. I I only saw it like a month or two ago. Um, in in any case, I mean, it, it, its success, you know, uh, speaks speaks for itself. And I mean, I I I I often have debates analogous to what you're talking about in your house, which is, I mean, you know, who who can you really dump on in these days of political correctness? And to me, it's always been, you know, the Germans, the Wasps, and the Mormons, basically. And, and you know, if you start dumping on people who aren't in any of those categories, you get into some trouble. I mean, as as the Hartford Current story, you know, that, that you and I have both read points out, um, you know, the Mormons use this as, as a missionary opportunity uh, in every city in America, and I'm sure in cities nation, you know, around the, around the world, the uh, missionaries will be, you know, you know, will be present when when people flock in to see the, the Book of Mormon musical. As you know, that they've taken out a full page ad in the playbill everywhere with this fairly clever line, you know, that now you've seen the musical, read the book. I mean, I think the, fa- the fact is the musical is a lot better than the book, but <laughs> there you have it. Uh, we're getting some interesting tweets here. Um, let's see. Um, Michael tweets, my LDS friends haven't seen the play and don't plan to. They disagree with anything that portrays the church as not true. Um you know, well, I, right. I mean, I, I, I'm in the middle of writing some stuff about this, but the, but the fact is that there are, there are many shades of Mormons, just as there are so many different shades of, of Catholics, Protestants, and Jews. Um, it is true. I mean, I, you know, I've been with the Mormons for a couple of years, and I started from absolute zero. I mean, if you go to a, a Mormon church service and and you hear testimony, I mean, your your tweeter is exactly correct. I mean. Men and women in the Mormon faith are, are required to say, I, I think once a year, but I'll apologize if I'm wrong about that. But what we, what in my religion, we call the Apostles' Creed. They call testimony, and they say, you know, um, I know that Joseph Smith was a true prophet of God, and I know the Book of Mormon to be true. So your, your tweeter is, is spot on, you know, where mainstream Salt Lake City Mormons are concerned. And I also think that it, it, this also gets into... The whole a whole question about humor to a certain degree uh, that um, and and we should also say that Mormons are going to this play and in, in some cases some Mormons are enjoying it some Mormons are saying they're enjoying most of it uh, they're troubled by certain things and and I read um, one quote from a woman who clearly was not uh, particularly uptight uh, Mormon but uh, who who was troubled there's a there's a scene there's a song. Uh, about in which this boy sings about his first time with a girl, doing it with a girl. But he's talking about baptism. Um, and it's a very funny song because of its double meaning, too, because there's so many things that are said uh, in, in the song that that really could be somebody describing his first sexual ex- experience. But he's talking about, uh, about baptizing somebody for the first time. Um, and she was very troubled by that. She said something as sacred to me as baptism I, I just can't laugh at at something that 
you know, at a song or, or a bit that kind of drags in sexuality to that. But it sort of gets to a real question about humor, too, because humor has to take that chance. I mean, when Mel Brooks released The Producers in 1966, it really freaked people out. World War II and the Holocaust weren't that far away in our rearview mirror. There's just a, a lot of people denounced that as unbelievably tasteless to suggest that there could be anything funny uh, about Nazis. But, you know, if you create humor and you worry about about the sensibilities of the most easily offended person, you won't create very much humor. Yeah, I mean that's a good point, and I mean, I mean, Brooks is, a, is in a sense is really just a giant for daring to do that in 1964. I, I, I must say, I didn't think the baptism thing was the most offensive. No, I it seemed to recall. I don't know. There's no point in cataloging offensive moments, but I think there are. <laughs> <laughs> there are other. We'd be here all day. <laughs> I mean, it is it is weird at the end of the day. I mean, you know that that Parker, one of the co-creators of the musical. You know, grew up in Colorado. I guess the first girl he dated was a Mormon. I mean, I think like every they call us Gentiles, as I'm sure you know, mm-hmm. all non Mormons are Gentiles. And um, at the end of the day, I mean, to to be familiar with this religion is is to have uh, profoundly mixed feelings about it, including some very profound positive feelings, as clearly you know Trey Parker himself has, and and almost everyone has come in contact with the, with the religion. Um, the the national tour is coming to Salt Lake City. One might have wondered whether such a thing was possible, although apparently you didn't wonder whether such a thing was possible. No, I well, <laughs> yeah, no. In my in my endless orgy of self congratulation, I um, <laughs> I noticed. I guess a year ago, it went to Denver, which is inside what's called the Mormon Culture Zone. Um, I I I had always wondered if Salt Lake City had the I assumed there was a, a cynical numbers calculation, meaning that maybe they just didn't have enough people to support. I think it's going there for two weeks, actually, a real, obviously fairly short tour. Um, what I, I hate to get in this preaching mode, although, as you can tell, it comes quite naturally to me. Um, Salt Lake City, as, as some people know, but not everyone, is um, only about 50 to 55 percent Mormon now. So curiously, just as people say the largest religion in America is the religion of former Catholics, Salt Lake City is basically a huge population of of former Mormons, um, who, of course, would would, would be very open to seeing the musical The Book of Mormon. Um, You know, uh, any any Utah or Mormon will tell you this musical won't be playing in Provo. I mean, uh, when you get outside of Salt Lake City into rural Utah... um, commitment to the religion is extremely extremely deep but um the other the other bizarre um tidbit i picked up was um i'm i'm obviously going to try and go out and promote this book i've written about joseph smith i learned that uh, joseph uh, excuse me john krakauer who wrote an incredibly hostile book mm-hmm. towards mormonism uh, which many of your listeners have read called under the banner of heaven which more or less accuses all mormons of being polygamists but that's sort of a separate thing he got sort of a hero's welcome in salt lake city um, he, he had literally thousands of readers there. So Salt Lake's a very complex place, you know, as complex as, as the Mormon religion itself. All right, Alex Beam, we're going to switch religions here uh, with the time that we have left and uh, talk about uh, Pope Francis uh, and talk about news in Boston. Uh, in fact, uh, your cardinal there has been appointed to a really important panel, right? Yes. I mean, this <laughs> we, we dine at this table, as you, you know, at the Boston Globe almost every day. Um, for, by, by, but yeah, by way of background, obviously over the over the weekend or late late last week, Pope Francis 
appointed this sort of long-awaited commission to, re- I guess, to review and investigate the um, Catholic Church's uh, rather ugly uh, history of sex abuse stretching back uh, numerous decades, also in, in numerous countries. Um, this is huge, huge news in Boston, uh, which I, I, I guess I should probably stop calling ground zero for clergy sex abuse, but it feels like ground zero for clergy sex abuse. Um, and in any case, uh, I'm, I'm a Francis fan. I, I ha- I'm not Catholic. I have been a Francis fan for quite a while. And I think his critics totally legitimately you know, have focused in on They've asked, you know, well, why isn't he talking about the the legacy of clergy sex abuse, and why isn't he engaging the victims of clergy sex abuse? Why does this seem to be item number 14 on his agenda? It, it's not my personal view, but it's a very fair criticism, very straight-up criticism. And he's, you know, some would say at long last he is taking some first steps towards showing that to, to him personally – uh, you know, this is this is worth the church's attention. He, you know, he not only appointed, quote unquote, our cardinal, um, Cardinal Malley of Boston, to this commission. He appointed, uh, you know, a, a kind of geographically, uh, cleric, laically diverse, and also, uh, you know, fairly unusual, I guess, for the Catholic Church, a gender gender diverse commission with um, several several women, several lay they have to be lay women. Um, who have who seem like at least you know on the surface like extremely serious people who have an extremely serious interest in uh, redress, redressing the wrongs of the Catholic Church. Um, I want to go back to uh, you being a, a fan of Pope Francis. It does sort of. I mean, I'm a big fan of Pope Francis too, and I'm not a Catholic either. He really just turning out to be the the Catholic that Episcopalians can really enjoy. Um, but I mean, I, I really do think that. He he could make a pretty legitimate argument that there are he's trying to change something really huge about the church. If you go back to Evangelii Gaudium, the 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 thing that he issued last November, I think it was, where he really is just completely questioning capitalism uh, and and really going after inequality in a way that nobody, I think, of his of his eminence of his level ha- has done in my lifetime. I mean, if that were the only thing that he did and he just hammered away at it for the next 15 or 20 years uh, and made some progress, it would be a completely amazing thing. I sort of get how he might s- say, you know, I can't I can't fix everything in gigantically broad strokes in, in my first year in office. Yeah, well, I mean, that you know, well said. Um you know, on the other hand, he is the Pope. <laughs> He's the Pope of the entire world. He can fix the whole world if he has to. Um, I, I um, You know, we have a, a writer here, Jim Carroll, did the big profile of Francis for The New Yorker, came out a few months ago. And I, um, Jim's a liberal Catholic. And I, I don't know, I guess I felt he gave full, you know, full voice to the, the, the clergy sex issue is just is, is, is huge in America. It's huge in Ireland, as I understand it. Um, I hear I hear what you said. I actually view this the the Fran- Francis's papacy so far through a slightly different lens, which is the one of um, you know just because you know the readers of the Hartford Current, the Boston Globe, and the New Yorker, you know, quote unquote, demand that he pay attention to clergy sex abuse, which again is is a huge story from Detroit, Chicago, Boston, and Los Angeles. I mean, he is. He's the Pope of a worldwide religion, and I, I, I uh, you know, choosing my words carefully, it, it's it's arguable that in the Philippines, 
which I guess is one of his most important constituencies, um, you know, it's just less of an issue. I, I, I'm, I'm talking through my hat. I'm not trying to offend anyone. But in, since you bring up Episcopalianism, you know, these, these, these worldwide religions are often sort of whipsawed by, you know, as you know, the Episcopalians are getting whipsawed by the African church, which is extremely numerous, and, and, and by dint of being numerous is powerful. So I, I guess I see Francis as, as having a, a very sort of complex game of risk you know, on the board in front of him. I, I'm totally ignorant about the church in South America, you know, which, which is a super important church, um, more concerned with the kinds of issues that, that you talked about, um, about equality, but, you know, where I think clergy sex abuse is, is probably about number four on their list of concerns. All right, Alex Beam, it's been great to talk to you. We're going to bring you back uh, probably in May uh, for the release of American Crucifixion, The Murder of Joseph Smith and the Fate of the Mormon Church. Thanks for being with us today. Colin, take care of yourself. Have a good day. All right. I'm cutting away a little bit early because I want to do the thank yous because we forgot to run them a little bit earlier. So let me just say that today's show is produced by, I have to do this all by from memory now, by, <laughs> by Betsy Kaplan and Kyone Wolf. I knew that part anyway. Uh, and our intern today was uh, Skylar Magnoli. Uh, Katie Tularski is our executive producer. See, I'm going to be able to do this whole thing without notes. Uh, Greg Hill appeared in the intro, intro as did uh, Betsy Kaplan. And Greg tweets for us at WNPR Colin. By the way, follow us. Uh, at WNPR Colin. We would really uh, like it if you did. Uh, and uh, there's a joke about the Faith Middleton show staff, but I don't remember how, how it goes. Uh, I should tell you that tomorrow we're going to do a show about hearing voices. Now, um, hearing voices often is taken as a sign of some kind of pathology, right? some kind of delusion. But there are people who hear voices, who, who sometimes call themselves hearers, uh, who do not believe that they need medication, that they, they sort of perceive this in a, in a whole different way. So uh, that'll be part of our show tomorrow. Uh, I should mention that uh, you've been probably saw you may have seen Bob Mankoff uh, on 60 Minutes uh, last night or heard him on, um, on Fresh Air today. So what is there left to do with Bob Mankoff, who's the cartoon editor of The New Yorker? We're going to do a New, New York uh, New Yorker cartoon show on Thursday, but we're going to focus it a little bit on Bob Mankoff, but also uh, about the cartoonists who work for Bob Mankoff, who have to get their work accepted uh, by Bob Mankoff. So we'll talk to a couple of those and also talk to people who submit cartoons to The New Yorker and never get them accepted, people who are still waiting uh, to break into those hallowed, hallowed pages. I also want to say that on uh, Friday for the news, uh, we've got uh, Gorman Bouchard, uh, who is the grumpiest man in filmmaking, uh, coming up to join us for an unusual appearance on The news. All of us are going to go see the Grand Budapest Hotel, the new Wes Anderson movie. We're going to talk about it on Friday. Carolyn Payne and James Hanley will be the other guest. So stay with us all week. You won't want to miss any of this. You know, on second thought, I'm feeling kind of agnostic about this book of atheism. Okay, that's it. I'm leaving this theater. Nah, life is meaningless. <laughs> well played.